Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, CID Senior Research Fellow Thomas Apt interviews Daniel Mejia, Secretary of Security of Bogota, and Chris Blattman, Professor at University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Daniel and Chris discuss how they used and generated evidence for policymaking with regard to security interventions in the city of Bogota. I'm here with Chris Blackman and Daniel Mejia. We're going to continue our conversation from our discussion at our CID security series. Let's begin with hotspots policing. As, as you discussed, Daniel, you were doing uh, a hotspots policing initiative, which assigns uh, police to crime hotspots and locations. And Chris, you were the lead evaluator or re- researcher on that effort. I just want to ask a very sort of direct question to get us started. Hotspots policing, would you do it again as a policymaker, Daniel? And Chris, would you recommend it to other uh, policymakers? Well, we definitely we would. Uh, we continue doing it, but we have to make some adaptations that from the things we learned from the evaluation that Chris helped us put together. We need to improve in many ways the type of interventions that we do in hotspots policing, which is probably be changed constantly the hotspots that are patrolled by time of the day, day of the week, or day of the month. That changes dramatically. And we should target the interventions towards the things that can be affected by this type of interventions and not necessarily think that uh, an intervention such as a hotspots policing intervention can actually reduce all types of crime, but certain types of crime and certain types of behavior. Chris, what do you think? I'd agree. I mean, the idea of merely trying to match police time or just the attention of the city to the proportion of crime happening in a place is very natural without overselling some of the benefits, which which might have happened. But one of the things that it made clear to me, I think Latin American cities per capita and Bogota in particular have many fewer police per person than anywhere else and and that's a constraint that is hard you know that's just that's an expensive thing to change and and it's not something within daniel's power i i I came away from this actually feeling much more strongly about the need probably for a city like bogota to get the resources to have more police in aggregate not only so that you can allocate that attention but that's going to i think address some of the spillovers issues Mm. that's my takeaway, I don't actually, I've never said that out loud to Daniel, so I don't know if, if you'd agree. Well, let's, let's sort of build off that, and, and, and Daniel, after Chris answers, come back to you. I mean, what do you think, in a concrete way, uh, we know about hotspots policing now that we didn't know before, uh, before the study was conducted? Well, I know a lot more. <laughs> I think we have confirmed an intuition that some people have that in some context of some types of crime, that that crime will simply move around the corner. And I think we've confirmed an intuition that some types of crime are more likely to be deterred by by increased attention. But even given the incredible size and scope of what Daniel was able to have done in his city, what's what I should sort of say is I was really struck by even now having run this thing that's larger than anything in history on this topic, those are still very imprecise statements where we have to be very cautious in spite of doing something that's 10 times larger than what's done before. 
And so the, the main thing I've learned is just how hard it is to make any of these statements about crime control or place-based interventions with any degree of confidence, even when you have this incredible opportunity. Daniel, before coming to you, just Chris, let me focus on that. Isn't that sort of a principal critique that policymakers have of researchers, that you give them access and resources and you're looking for concrete guidance and they come back and tell you it's a complicated issue, can't mm -hmm. be sure? Well, some things you can be more confident than others. I've been doing this for 15 years. I don't tell that cautionary tale about a lot of what I've worked on in the past. I think any time you've got a constrained area, like a city, which fundamentally is not that big at the end of the day, and you're intervening in places, there's something fundamental to that kind of design that really places limits on how confident you can be in the results, partly because there's only so many places you can intervene, and partly because it's this dense network poking in one spot affects another. It's like squeezing a balloon. And so not every research project is like squeezing a balloon. I think it's a, there's a set of questions. Some questions are harder than others. Excess caution is not usually something I'm accused of personally, at least. So to oversimplify your posture with regard to hotspots, you were generally supportive of the idea of assigning resources as needed, but you're somewhat skeptical about this as sort of a panacea for crime issues. Is your concern or caution or skepticism limited to hotspots policing, or is it all place-based criminal justice interventions? All I'd say is that I, I came in having read things that told me that the consensus from a huge literature was that this was really effective, and if anything, positive benefits diffused. One study, the best it can do is it can just get us to either confirm or to challenge that belief and just adjust our expectations. And all I'm saying is I'm still, I still think this is a worthwhile effort, but I've downgraded my confidence. And that's what studies do. Some, they move us in one direction. They can only move us in two directions. But is it about the place-based nature of it? Uh -huh. Is it about the policing? Well, I think anything place-based is always going to be harder to be confident about is, is one thing. And so, and then anything place-based, if we're talking about mobile individuals and intervening in places, there's always this danger of, of, of displacement. So in that sense, yes, you know, you could imagine a place-based tactic that, that was, you know, I'm thinking on the fly here. You could imagine a place-based tactic that is targeting the kinds of behaviors that, that aren't going to go anywhere, right? So one example I used earlier today was bar brawls. That's a perfect example of a place-based intervention where you, you station more, you know, peace officers of some kind around the bars when they're getting out on Friday and Saturday night. That's just common sense. It's common sense because it's it's clear that they're not a bunch of drunken and potentially violent people are not going to be stumbling out of a warehouse 12 blocks away, right? Because they're just not there. So it's not all place-based. But the fact is, is that more place-based interventions to me seem like hotspots policing. But more seem to be targeted at things that could potentially displace than, than not. Thank you, Chris. Daniel, what are your thoughts both about, after working on this, both about hotspots policing and about place-based interventions generally? I think this was a literature that was developed by criminologists initially. 
but it's it's a perfect textbook example of what economics is. It's using economics, remember, that is the study of the efficient use of scarce resources. And as Chris mentioned, Bogotá is the city in Colombia with the lowest number of policemen per capita. Just to give you the, the exact number, Bogotá has 237 police officers per 100,000 inhabitants, whereas cities, other cities in Colombia have more than 600, more than 500 police officers per 100,000 inhabitants. So we have to make a better and more efficient use of police resources, and this is done by placing police where crime is, where they can have the largest marginal return to a minute of an extra minute of policing. And this is this is kind of common sense. And we didn't change, for instance, the protocols. What police do in a street segment when they are patrolling. In other experiments, they have changed not only the amount of time that they spend in a hotspot, but the type of things, the types of things that they do in the hotspot. So I think this gives us a sense, and, and we learn from this, that crime displacement is more of an issue, especially for property crime, for motivational crimes. It did work more on violent crime, especially in, in things related to fights and things that are not motivated by some market trends. But the same issue that you have with displacement, with uh, place-based uh, interventions, you have it with individual-based interventions. For instance, the parallel would be replacement. When you arrest a drug dealer or a criminal, as long as there are market trends associated with that activity, someone is going to replace that person. So displacement is to place-based interventions what replacement is to individual-based interventions. Wow, that's a very interesting insight. And th that's a parallel, and I think that doesn't mean that we should not do anything. It's that we should anticipate those collateral effects of these interventions and try to build more and more efficient ways of doing hotspot policing or individual-based interventions to try to prevent those negative collateral effects of these type of interventions. I feel like in this world of evidence-informed policy, we focus in on a particular intervention and we study it very carefully and then we debate the results and these things, but it is necessarily somewhat narrow and somewhat myopic. How do we communicate to policymakers the need to rigorously study individual interventions, yet properly make them understand that you will necessarily need multiple types of interventions to address complex and persistent social phenomena like crime. How do we balance that message of sort of rigor and narrowness with a sort of more balanced and comprehensiveness? Well, I think there are, as we mentioned in the event this morning, there are things that can definitely be evaluated, rigorously evaluated with a randomized control trial and a, having a formal evaluation. And that gives us a lot of information for policymakers to understand what works and what doesn't work. And in a sense, if you can, at what cost do they work or at what cost do they do not work? And this gives us a sense of what type of interventions we should do. But there are many other things that cannot be evaluated and they should be, but that doesn't mean that that the decisions cannot be evidence-informed. For instance, I was giving you the example a few a few minutes ago about the intervention that we did in this place called the Bronx in Bogota. This was a place full of criminal activities, uh, people consuming drugs, targeted killings, kidnaps, people kidnapped in this place. 
and we had to intervene that place and get the control of that place, arrest some criminals that were managing this place. But we had to do it carefully. And we didn't have an evidence-based, we didn't have research on this. We just have had cases of interventions that hadn't worked in some other places like Brazil and some things that had worked in the past. But the scale of, in the, of this intervention was unique to Latin America. The amount of policemen that had to go in on that day, on, on the 28th of May of 2016, was about 2,500 policemen getting into a three-block part of Bogota, full of criminals, full of homeless people consuming drugs, full of kids, underage population. And there were enormous risks to doing this. But the planning of these interventions and the amount of time you have to spend with a lot of people giving you hints on how to do it, what should, you should be prepared for. It's important also to have evidence-informed, not only evidence-based, but evidence-informed uh, interventions and things that you do as a policymaker. I, just that distinction is uh, one that I, I've always felt is important to talk about uh, policymaking that's informed by evidence, informed of the, by the best evidence and best data currently available understanding that there will be constraints and that policymaking can never be based entirely on, on evidence. Chris, what are your thoughts? So there's, you know, I, one appeal I think that I used to make to policymakers that resonated, but I, I actually don't believe it as the best appeal right now, but a, an appeal that resonated is to say that definition of insanity is like, what is it? It's doing the same thing over and over and over again, even if it doesn't work. And sometimes a lot of policies feel like that, that we keep doing this thing like hotspot policing or jailing people or whatever it's going to be. And we, it doesn't feel like it's working. And so there's an appeal to be made. Like if we could just in lots of places, take the things we do over and over again and actually see if they work, wouldn't that be useful to know? And of course the answer is yes, that resonates. And that led to a lot of evaluation, but I've actually changed how I approach it and how I talk to policymakers and how I prioritize at least, you know, the, I can only spend so much time. And now what I actually do is when I talk to a policymaker, when I'm working with a government, I try to figure out like what's, what are the, what are the one or two assumptions they're making about the world on which everything they do seems to hinge or a huge amount. And if that's uncertain itself, like how do we actually do a program evaluation, but how do we do something that actually tests that assumption and maybe fundamentally changes the whole basis of policymaking. And in, and in Liberia, I arrived, for example, at a moment when there was a big question about whether or not you could take all of these like former child soldiers coming back from war or who'd come back from war, all of these people who are in the jungle seemingly preparing for criminal or mercenary careers and looking to fight the next civil war or looting diamonds and guys in the city who seem to be just starting a life of career crime and slowly organizing and this is going to be the headache of the country for the next generation. And there is a big debate between do we have a more military response and leverage or develop our own expertise and leverage the peacekeeping forces, or do we take a rehabilitation approach? And which direction you go, the fundamental assumption is could these guys rehabilitate? Like, are they changeable or are they kind of, is somebody who's been a drugged out child soldier 12 years ago and today is a seemingly unstable 26 year old, are they over. And I, I, I remember talking to a counselor, like a rehabilitation counselor, in one of these rehabilitation sites. It was my first day. And there was this one person, like if you had to pick the person on that campus of like 400 people, 
who was just seemed so far gone. This woman was completely not in control of herself. She was emotionally unstable. She was wild. She was yelling. She was the least cooperative person. She was disruptive of everything. And I was talking to this incredibly talented, calm, cool, collected counselor who was really trying to work with her. And she steps away from a moment to like take a break and someone else steps in. I'm like, wow, like, what do you do with that kind of person? And she turned to me, she said, yeah, like, I know it's like, and she sympathized, but she, she's sympathizing with me. And I thought she was going to agree with me that this woman's far gone. She was like, that was me 10 years ago. And it was true. It turned out every single one of those counselors were people who had made that personal transformation. And now they had their thing that they called the personal transformation program that kind of blew my mind. And if they, what they were saying was true or generally true, then we needed to completely rethink how we think about rehabilitation. If someone that far gone can change and they were doing something that looked like magic and we ran a study and we found out what that magic was and we gave it a name and it was actually something, you know, in some ways fairly conventional that in the U S we've, associate with cognitive behavior therapy. And I think that really changed the conversation in Liberia and it changed the conversation elsewhere. So now I target, I look for the things that are really fundamental, like almost like an axis on which a lot of big policies can turn. And I try to put my energies there. It's interesting. In, in some ways you have a sort of an, an intellectually disruptive approach. You're looking for a, a big, powerful misconception mm -hmm. and you're looking to sort of target that and subjected to scrutiny and to sort of liberate people from big, powerful misconceptions. Well, I'm using Daniel, Daniel's logic is he's trying to get the squeeze the highest marginal return out of an extra minute of police time. And I'm like, I only get to pick one new project this year and I need to squeeze the highest marginal return in terms of impact on policy because I don't have time to work on three projects. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's the, what better way? Well, it's an interesting point because I think uh, a, a lot of what we think of in evidence informed policy is not, Sometimes it's destructive, but it's often constructive. And, you know, we make a positive finding, and then can we add another positive finding, get more, can we replicate, can we get more external validity? There's a knowledge building. Mm -hmm. But I think you're, you're, I think that's a good point, that we need to build uh, reliable knowledge and tear down mm -hmm. unreliable knowledge. Any thoughts? Well, I want to jump on one thing that Chris mentioned regarding the either do control policies or do prevention? And I think that's a false dilemma. And I learned this in, the, in, this, in this job. We should not resign to any policy tool. We should try to do prevention as much as we can. But if it fails and someone who is offered uh, rehabilitation programs and doesn't want to get it and he, wants to he or she wants to continue in a criminal career, then you should, you should use the other tool. And this is something that we have confronted in Bogota. With especially with juveniles that go through the penal system for adolescents, for children and adolescents. We try our best to try to get them back to school, to try to bring uh, school classes to the centers where they are convicted. But then some of them get out with all the rehabilitation programs that we can have and go back into a criminal career. By then, they are, they are adults. And if they chose to do that, you should not. We should not resign to do control policies. Get them to get them arrested. Get them, get them to jail, and get them to pay a cost for what they chose to do as an as adults, right? So I think politically there is always this tendency to to say, are you going to do only prevention or only control? And that's a false dilemma. You we should have the, both tools and use them appropriately, targeted towards the most efficient use of resources.
Mm-hmm. I think it's such an interesting point. You would never tell a parent to parent their child based only on incentives or based only on punishments. And we sort of neglect the full range of human experience when we don't use all the, the tools in the toolbox. But I think one thing that's interesting here in the U.S. is we believe that, you know, our criminal justice policy, we're going through a very controversial mm-hmm. time here in the United States. We believe that we're having a lot of difficult, very polarizing discussions about criminal justice. But when, in fact, at least in my personal experience, when I go to Latin America and see some of the conversations, those are, in fact, much more polarized than even mm-hmm. the conversations that we're having in the United States. Extreme preferences for non-punitive uh, approaches or extreme, extremely punitive approaches. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you know, the evidence collectively is sort of drawing us towards the middle. How do we start to change that conversation, primarily in Latin America, but are there lessons also for the United States to sort of use evidence to shift from a argument-winning mode to a problem-solving mode? I have an answer, but it might change the the focus of the of our conversation, which is you have to bring more expertise to policymaking. You have to bring more experts to make the decisions in policymaking. More than that, he is. No, no, no. That doesn't necessarily mean that. It it means that we should advise politicians more, maybe, from universities, from research centers, from consultant companies, on what's the best way to approach policy decisions based on uh, like a base of, of of evidence that that either that country has or that city has, or take evidence from other parts of the world. But that's that's not an easy task to do because most politicians are based on incentives completely different from doing the right thing. But we should try to guide or push towards having a more more expertise in the policy decision process. Mm-hmm. Chris, what are your thoughts? So I don't have. I don't think expertise to add. I can speculate. So I'm, I'm technically a foreigner. I became American two years ago and grew up in Canada. And so there, there's not that many differences. And so when you see differences, they stand out more. And one thing is just how certain issues that are in some sense about expertise or, or about just what's the state of the world, like how did, how did the criminal justice issues can become a partisan issue. And so that's tr- more true in the U.S. than in Canada. And in, in the U.S., like climate change is a partisan issue in a way that it might not be a partisan issue in other. And just so it happens to align, there's other there's there's issues that are not partisan issues in the U.S. that are partisan issues in Canada. So criminal justice happens to be one of them. Once that happens, I'm actually quite skeptical about the role of expertise and something has to change. I'm not I'm not sure that more information or more advising, but. There's a great many countries and there's a great many issues where it hasn't become part of that polarization, hasn't become someone's social identity to say, I have to, I can't deviate from this policy position because that would be to deviate from my whole sort of partisan identity. So I actually find in in Colombia, I can talk to politicians and people at every level of government on all sides of an issue. And I can often have very reasonable conversations and they're very open to evidence and ideas in a way that they're, I think, perhaps not in the U.S. because as maybe as polarizing it is in, in Latin America, it hasn't, it's not quite as much of a partisan issue. So I personally then take the opportunities where I can get them. And and I, I don't know what I would do if I had to be a criminologist in the United States. I think I, 
Maybe I'd have a better answer, but I might give up in despair. Well, I, I, maybe, maybe you would. I also think that you may, for reasons just related to networks and things, have easier access to foreign right. policy. But I, I probably have more ready access to American policymakers because I used to be in American policymaking. Mm-hmm. But I think those points are well taken. I think that there is something that is happening in the American discourse, which I hope happens in the criminal justice discourse in places like Colombia and in Latin America, which is that there is a sort of fatigue with sort of hyper-partisanship. And people are looking for not just sort of endless negative attack stories, but increasingly looking in media for positive, constructive, sort of forward-thinking stories. And if those stories can be sort of nurtured, what you would hope is that you can sort of start to get equal time and equal attention for for some of those stories. That's a non-scientific, ideological, you know, idealistic view. But maybe we'll end on a positive note like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.